All right, so this morning, we're still in 1 Kings. We're going to be going from 1 Kings 5 to the first couple verses of 1 Kings 9. And this is the subject, this is the chapter where Solomon actually builds the temple. Now, this week, I was talking with one of my coworkers. He was, we were just, we were, two workstations are right next to each other, so we occasionally banter back and forth. And he was telling me about the house that he grew up in. Um, was built just around the time of World War II was ending. Um, it was built, I don't think it was built by his grandparents, but it was built by someone of that generation. And um, this fella, it was uh, very limited in his resources. Of course, the Depression hadn't quite ended yet. And so he used whatever was available to build this house. You know, the roof, the, the frame of the roof was built from old surplus crates from the army. Um, he just disassembled them and put the wood together and made a roof out of it. And he was saying, my friend was telling me, that um, he had to go, his, they had, uh, had a big hailstorm and a tornado, and the roof was damaged, so they had to fix it. And they went up on the roof and started trying to strip off the shingles. There was about 12 layers of shingles on this roof, because instead of actually fixing the roof, they just put new layers of shingles down for all these years. And so they had the work of stripping all those shingles off, and they got down to these crates underneath. And the, the spacing of the wood was, you know, these two boards would be about six inches apart. These would be 12 inches apart. The next one would be maybe 10 inches apart. And, and on down the line, he just, the man who built the house didn't use much of a plan. He didn't use much of store-bought materials. He just used what he could with the ability that God had given him and the skill that he had. Um, he just put it together. It's kind of on the fly. So as this house is being built, as you, you know, and, and he's telling me also the wiring in the house, um, they didn't wire into the walls, they just wired up the wall, and they just took wa- copper or wire and just wrapped it in paper, he said. It was insulated with paper insulation, just going around the house. Of course, that, no fire hazard there. <laughs> That's not a, not a problem at all. But um, anyway, this, this house was just built. It was just built that way. He just built it with whatever he could. Are we on now? It should be. Okay. Sounds good. Um, excuse me. So the point is that as this house was built, it shows the limitations of the skill of the builder. Um, this man, he, may, he didn't have a lot of planning, he didn't have a lot of wealth, but he was able to build a house. He had the skill to do that. But there were some limitations there. Um, in the same way, 1 Kings 5-9 through 9, talk about how Solomon built the temple. And in this passage, we see this grand building that Solomon built, it demonstrates the wisdom that he had to do it, the wisdom that came from God, but it also shows us the limitations of that wisdom. Solomon could build a temple, but he couldn't change the hearts of a nation. Um, Solomon could unite a kingdom. He could even join Gentiles into this task, um, but he can't graft them into, he can't join them to God. So we see in this passage um, the, the, the extent, the full extent of Solomon's wisdom, the, the extent that he has to do that, and, it, and we see where that extent ends. We see where the, the, we see the limitations of his wisdom in that. So let's begin with the text, um, telling the story. Let's begin, actually, we're going to back up a little bit at the end of chapter 4 because there's something about Solomon's wisdom there that we need to see that we didn't have time to look at last week. So we'll actually start in chapter 4, verse 29 of 1 Kings. Uh, and I'll just read there to the end of the chapter to get us started. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men. And then Ethan, the Ezraite, Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also about animals and birds and creeping things and fish. Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and from all the kings of the earth who heard his wisdom. So that passage gets us started. It, It certainly describes for us the extent of his wisdom, which was broad, shall we say. Uh, It even says there in verse uh, 31 that he was wiser than all men. 
Of course, that's what God promised him, right? When he prayed for wisdom at the beginning, at the beginning we saw that last week, God said, I'm going to make you wiser than anyone else who's ever lived. And that's what, it, that's what this verse says. In other words, God has fulfilled his promise. But notice there in verse 29 that his, the description of his wisdom is like the sand that's on the seashore. What kind of language is that? Where does that kind of language come from? Abraham. Abraham. That's God's promise to Abraham. That's a very strange twist on that promise. Because the, the original promise was your people are going to be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. But here we have that same language being applied to Solomon's brain capacity. Uh, his mind, it says. Which is amazing. Which is, so there's a connection there between the wisdom that God gives Solomon and the fulfillment of that promise, in other words. It is, it is as Solomon expresses this wisdom that these promises are being fulfilled. God's given him the capacity of mind that's great enough to fulfill these promises, in other words. Uh, so it's, like verse 29 says, this is a very great discernment indeed. Um, but notice where this wisdom comes from. It says in verse 30 that he's wiser than all the sons of the east and, and all of the wisdom of Egypt. Now where did Egypt get its wisdom from? What was the basis of the knowledge and skill that was in ancient Egypt? Did they just study a lot? They had a, they have big libraries or something. The Pharaoh had a PhD, maybe. Where where was where was their wisdom come from? It came from the occult. It came from the devil. This was this the the ancient Egypt is like the prototypical occultic society. You know, they had the high priests. They worshipped Ra and they worshipped Isis and they worshipped these false gods, and that's where their wisdom came from. It was a spiritually based wisdom. Same thing for the wisdom of the East. In Babylon, where did their wisdom come from? Same place. Um, it's the same kind of thing. And so there's a contrast here. The Solomon's wisdom is greater than the wisdom of Egypt. What does that say about where Solomon gets his, his wisdom from? It comes from God's Holy Spirit. That's, that's what this text is saying. That God has given him the Holy Spirit and has made him so wise, he surpasses the wisdom of Egypt. And you can see that also in verse 32. He spoke 3,000 Proverbs. What are, what are the Proverbs? We have the book of Proverbs. Where did Solomon get the wisdom to write Scripture? Where does Scripture come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. Right? So, so the text is specifically telling us the name Holy Spirit is not used in this passage. But this is how the Holy Spirit shows up in the Old Testament. Um, this is one of the places where it shows up in the Old Testament. And this is how it shows up. The Holy Spirit is very rarely named in the Old Testament. But he's... You can track him through the Old Testament. He shows up wherever you see someone with wisdom from God, the Holy Spirit is there. So that, that's, the Holy Spirit is kind of um, in the shadows. It's a mystery. The, the role of the Holy Spirit is a mystery in the Old Testament that's revealed in the New. But he's there. You can see him. And so now, Solomon has this very great wisdom. He has this expansive wisdom that is greater than anyone who's ever lived before him. And now in chapter 5 through 9, he begins to apply that wisdom for the building of the temple. And so he sends, he sends up to Hiram, and this is the beginning of chapter 5 now. Now Hiram, of Tyre, sent servants to Solomon because they heard about David's death, and he wanted to console him for David's death and congratulate him on his elevation. So Solomon sends it back to him, saying, verse 3 now, You know my father David was unable to build a house for the name of the Lord, his God, because of the wars which surrounded him, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. Behold, I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord spoke to David my father, saying, Your son whom I will set on your throne in your place, he will build a house for my name. Now therefore, and so he commanded, cut me down some timbers and send them, and I'll pay your wage. And so what, what is happening in this um, passage is Hiram and Solomon make a covenant together. They make a, a treaty and agreement. And part of that treaty and agreement is the building of the temple. So, uh, Hiram is going to supply the wood and the manpower, and some of the manpower to, to harvest the timber. And Solomon is in return going to give food to Hiram's household. So they make a trade. It's a good trade. You give me wood, I'll give you food, and everything will be great. Um, but look at what Hiram says to Solomon in verse 7. Now, when Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said... Blessed be the Lord today, who has given to David a wise son over this great people. So Hiram 
takes a look at the wisdom that God has given Solomon, and he worships God for it. And he even uses the covenant name um, for God there. So here we have the, the, the very first thing that Solomon does with his wisdom as it begins to build the temple is he starts bringing Gentiles into the work and bringing Gentiles into the worship of God. Um, this is part of the promises of God to Abraham, that the nations would be blessed through you. So now that, now that Solomon has this wisdom, he's able to bless the nations by bringing them into the worship of God. This is how wise he is. Um, and so they make a covenant, and, they, and the, it says, now you skip down uh, to verse 12, and the details of that transaction are listed in the verses in between. And it says, the Lord gave wisdom to Solomon just as he promised him, and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a covenant. So here we have Jews and Gentiles making a peace, peace agreement. There is no longer enmity between the Jews and Gentiles, at least in this limited area. There is unity and peace, all because of the wisdom of Solomon. Um, so this is, this is a profound thing. If we read it in terms of the promises of God that have gone before, we're seeing that the wisdom that God gives Solomon is bring the blessing of Abraham, and it's uniting Jew and Gentile. That's an astonishing thing for him to do. Um, so now that they've got the materials, the work, uh, and they've got this contract in place, the work can begin. So Solomon, now at the end of the chapter, he levies forced laborers. He takes 30,000 conscripts, that is, they had a draft. Instead of going to war, they had a draft to build the temple. And 30,000 men were drafted, and they went to work a, a month at a time, 10,000 a month, uh, in relays. So 10,000 would go to work, and they'd work a month, and they'd come back and they'd switch shifts that way. They had a month-long shift. Uh, and they would go up and cut wood and bring it back and all that. And he also had 70,000 transporters, in verse 15 now, 80,000 hewers of stone, and 3,300 chief deputies who were over the project, working over it. So in other words, this was a huge undertaking. This is, not only were we seeing the expansive, we were seeing the expanse of his wisdom described in terms of the expansiveness of the building project. It would take an enormous amount of skill to orchestrate a project of this scale. Um, and so the point is here, a more practical application of that wisdom, the skill of, of actually getting this job done. And so they query costly stones and they start and they start the work. Now in chapter 6, um, the, the building is described for us. Um, first he tells us when they started, in verse 1 there of chapter 6, um, the 480th year after they came out of Egypt, which was Solomon's fourth year, they began the they, they began the work, and now it begins to describe in some of the dimensions of it. Um, it might be instead of reading those, it might be better just to draw a picture um, and summarize it that way instead of reading all of that stuff. So there is. Um, so the building was uh, in the middle of the temple is a square, which is the most holy place, and here it's twenty cubits. The um, the holy place would be 40 by 20, and then around it, and then around it, what chapter 6 is describing is that around it, around the building are these other little, uh, there is another, another structure that surrounds it that's full of rooms. Um, this is not to scale. <laughs> not even close. Um, and the, these rooms that surround it are three stories tall. There's three levels of story. The entrance would be something like here. So there's, anyways, that's what chapter 6 there is describing those first few verses. Um, faces east, the entrance to those outer rooms is on the south. Um, and they're built out of, you know, precious stones, the, the um, hewn stones and all that sort of thing. Um, it says in verse 7, the house while it was being built was built of stone prepared at the quarry. There was neither hammer nor axe nor any iron tool heard in the house while it was being built. So you have this huge, huge building that's built on a stone foundation. Massive stone blo limestone blocks were paved this thing. And then they build the walls, three rows of stone deep to build the walls with a row of timber in between. Um, you can see that in verse 36, if you look down there. Uh, the inner court was built, that is the walls. Maybe I should draw a cross-section of the walls. Now, let me read the verse first. Um, the, he built the inner court with three rows of cut stone and a row of cedar beams. So that a cross-section of the walls would be 
There's a row of blocks like that, a row of timbers, and another row of blocks, something like that. Um, massively thick walls um, to support this structure. Um, and all of this stone was cut to dimensions at the quarry and brought and just dropped into place. Um, that takes some skill. I mean, that's not an easy thing to do, especially when you're talking about building a, blocking out a foundation of massive stones that weigh several tons. And they just came and transported them there and just swapped them right in place, and they just all fit. Um, that takes wisdom to do that. It takes skill. Um, but it wasn't just... It wasn't just Solomon's wisdom. Solomon's wisdom was overseeing it, but there was kind of, in a sense, a sharing of Solomon's wisdom with the people doing it, if, if that makes any sense. Um, you can see that also in, you can see that that is a, re a repetition of a theme that happened back in the book of Exodus. Do you remember that, that there was a guy named, in, in think Exodus 34, a guy named Basalel, or the son of somebody? Um, who had who was able to build all of the intricate metalwork and all of the things and, and wove all the tapestries for the tabernacle? It says in Exodus that he had a heart of wisdom to do that, um, and this is the a wisdom given by the Holy Spirit. I think in the book of Exodus, I think that is the point. Um, but all of the people who were helping him also had that same wisdom. He makes that point explicit in Exodus, and I think we can say the same thing here in in First Kings, is that the wisdom that Solomon had from God was in some way able to be distributed to those people who were now working on this project and building it. Um, so now as they're, as they're applying this wisdom to build it, God interjects, right in the middle of this description, there's a break in the action, and God interjects um, his opinion in verses 11 through 13 of chapter 6. So let's read that. Now the Lord came to Solomon saying, Concerning this house which you are building, if you walk in my statutes and execute my ordinances, and keep all my commandments by walking in them, I will carry out my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the sons of Israel, and I will not forsake my people. So he's saying, you're building me this house, and you're using your wisdom, and that's all great and fine. Um, but if you want me to dwell there, if you want me to be with you in this house, you have to obey my law. You have... I don't want to live in a house so much as I want to live in your hearts. I don't necessarily want to have a, have a place except in your hearts. That's what God is saying, is if you want me to be there, it, it's not enough to overlay this whole thing with gold. It's you've got to change your hearts if you want me to be there. So just, just know that as you're building it. Um, the house is not the thing. It's the hearts of the people that is the, is the concern here. Um, so Solomon builds the house, and he... Um, of course, they, the walls, the stone, there were stones on the inside, and, the, and then the last part of chapter 6 there, they would panel with cedar and cypress um, to hide the stones. So inside, so you, um, when you would look at it, especially when you're on the inside, you would walk in the room, and there's paneling covering the ceiling, the floors, and the walls, so you don't see any of the stone. And in that paneling, they carved intricate carvings. It says that they carved them... Um, uh, verse 18 says, it was carved in the shape of gourds and open flowers yeah, inside the uh, sanctuary there. So you, you picture scroll work with the vines twisting up around and there's a gourd and over here and there's a flower, all carved into, carved into the walls and the ceiling. And then on top of that, they plastered everything in gold. They pounded gold foil flat and they laid it across that inlay. So that when you walk into the room, the floors, the walls, and the ceiling are gold. Um, all of the furniture that's in there is gold. Um, and, and it's all intricately, oh, oh, overlaid all that intricately carved work, all that, that relief would, of course, be represented in the gold as well. So you see, you walk into this room and there is this beautiful designs in gold everywhere you look. This is an amazingly, um, it's an amazingly beautiful work. And it takes a lot of skill to do that. So it says in verse 21, Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold across the front of the inner sanctuary, and he overlaid that with gold. He overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. And the whole altar, which was by the inner sanctuary, he overlaid that with gold. So it's gold everywhere. Everything is gold. Now, inside the sanctuary, that is, you come inside, inside here, uh, of course, that's where the, 
the Ark of the Covenant rests here. Now, he does something um, that was never in the tabernacle. He builds these huge statues of um, cherubim. That's a cherubim, in case you can't tell. <laughs> um, I'm nowhere near, nowhere near as artistic as these men were. Um, I don't have that skill. Um, he builds these two huge cherubim out of olive wood. So they take this valuable wood, olive wood, and they carve out these cherubim. They are 10 cubits high, it says in verse 23 there, which is 15 foot tall. It's a 15 foot tall statue of an angel. And they spread out their wings, um, five cubits on either side. So it's 10 cubits wide, which is 15 feet wide. 15 feet tall, 15 feet wide. They spread out their wings. And note the precision of the work here. It says that they, they placed them, in verse 27, they placed them in the inner house, the, the, that is the, the inner sanctum. And the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that the wing of the one was touching the wall. And the other wing of it was touching the, the other cherub in the middle. And then the other, the other cherub was touching the other wall. And then the wings touched in the middle. And these things were carved off site and also brought into the work because you, you wouldn't have any carving going on in the house. So the, note, note the precision there. The, the room is 20 cubits wide and 20 cubits tall. And so what they do is they build two angel statues there together are 20 cubits wide. And they just fit them right into place. And they touch the walls and they touch each other. And they just fit perfectly into the room. Um, again, it's an, it's an amazing degree of skill that these men had that they carved these intricate, huge statues and they just dropped them in place and they fit precisely. Um, and they did that without computer drafting <laughs> tools and CNC machines to cut the wood. And, and they just, they carved it, they just, you know, they do, carved it, and it fit. I mean, that, that's, that's amazing wisdom. And then, of course, they overlaid that with gold. Why not? Um, so they... Um, but that's something that, that doesn't... So in other words, as you walk into this temple, um, you've got, on the doors there, you've got um, doors made of olive wood, and on them are, this is now to verse 32, and on them are carvings of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers, and what well, let's overlay that, that with gold. And you spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So the doors are, is this scene of palm trees with angels flying around on it. And then you push open the doors and you walk into this gold room and everything is gold and there's gold. Uh, there's ten golden lampstands that were made out of solid gold. I mentions that later. Of course, in the tabernacle there was one gold lampstand. In the temple, he made ten of them. And these things would have been made about 70 pounds of gold each. Solid gold. 700 pounds of gold just for lamps. Um, you walk into this place, what is that a picture of? Where else do you see something in the Bible that is everything overlaid with gold? Or everything made out of gold. Where in the Bible do you see that, huh? Heaven. Heaven, that's right. The streets of gold. All of that, the cherubim, the angels flying around giving praise to God. This is, in other words, you walk into the temple, it's like walking into a little picture of heaven. And we know that Moses built the, the tabernacle on the pattern that was given him of heaven. And, of course, the temple and the tabernacle are built on the same pattern. They're, these are built, this is meant to reflect the heavenly sanctuary. Um, that's why it could be a considered dwelling place for God. It was meant to be a little picture of what heaven would be like on the earth. And so it takes this, this great amount of skill given from God to represent that. Uh, I don't think it's just human wisdom that built this and made it look like heaven. Um, it was wisdom that was given from God to do it. Um, so, so they have this little bit of heaven on earth, and they call it the temple, and they built it there and overlaid it all with gold. Now in chapter... Um, and it took him, of course, at the end of chapter 6, it tells us that he did he, he finished in the 11th year, and so it took him seven years to build it. Um, so seven years of, of drafting men and sending them around to cut wood and cut metal or cut uh, stone and put it all together. Seven years it took him to do it. Um, and then after that, he spent, in chapter 7 now, it describes his own house. And it was built um, out of similar materials, but not a similar pattern. And he spent 13 years building that. Uh, of the same wood um, with the same kind of windows the same kind of rows the same kind of um, uh, stones it says in verse 9 all these were costly stones cut to measure solid with saws inside and out even to the foundation uh, from the top to bottom from the big to the little uh, inside and outside um, so the, he takes and you can see in the um, 
verse 12 it says that the great court all around had three rows of cut stone and a row of cedar beams, even like just like the inner court of the house of the Lord. So he takes the same um, style of building and he builds his house out of that. But he doesn't overlay everything in his house with gold. We're not quite that rich. Um, so he, it's the same kind of deal for his house. Um, now we get back to the, the theme of God's wisdom. And there in chapter 7, verse 13, it says, Now Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. This is a different Hiram. This is not Hiram, the king of Tyre anymore. Uh, this is probably a different Hiram. He sent and brought Hiram, king of Tyre. And he was a widow's son from the tribe of Naphtali. And his father was a man of Tyre. And he was a worker in bronze. And note the text. Um, this is verse 14. He was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill with doing all kinds of work or any kind of work in bronze. So he came to King Solomon and performed the work. So this is the, um, the temple's at, uh, analog to Bezalel. We have Bezalel build the tabernacle and he was filled with wisdom to build all the stuff out of gold and to weave the tapestries and all that sort of thing. And now God gives another man who's full of wisdom who is skillful in bronze. And he's going to build all of the... Of course, they already had the furniture for the inside. They had that from the tabernacle. But now what they need is the furniture for the courtyard, um, a bigger altar, a bigger bronze sea, uh, portable basins to utensils, all that sort of thing. All that stuff is made out of bronze. And so God gives another man with wisdom who has the skill and ability to do that, and he sends him. His name is Hiram. But notice, where does this guy come from? He, lived, he comes from Tyre, verse 13 and 14, and his father was a citizen of Tyre, but his mom was a Jew from Naphtali. So his dad is a Gentile, and his mom is a Jew. So here, here's a, that same theme again is coming up. That in the work of the temple, you have this unity of Jew and Gentile. Sort of in the person of Tyre, you have that symbolized, because he's half Jew and half Gentile. And yet God has taken this man and given him the wisdom from God needed to do these things. And so there's the rest of this chapter lists all the things that he was able to build. The first thing he did was he made... Uh, he put two big pillars out of bronze here on the doorway. Um, and their description is impressive, to say the least. Um, verse 15, he fashioned two pillars from bronze. 18 cubits was the height of each. Um, 18 cubits would be, was that, 27 feet tall. So, uh, almost three stories tall. And the, the circumference of the two of them together was 12 cubits. Um, I don't know why you measure them both together, but they did. Um, so he made, and he made two capitals out of molten bronze and put them on the top. And the description was, um, in verse 17 says, there were nets of network and twisted threads of chain work for the capitals, which were on top of the pillars, seven for one capital, seven for the other. And he made the pillars two rows around the one network over the top of the capitals, which were on top of the pomegranates. So he did for the other. In other words, there was all this kind of intricate carving but except it's not carving, it's cast bronze. Uh, pomegranates and chains and some sort of network made out of bronze. And incredibly intricate work that's put on the top of this thing. Um, and it's like seven feet big, this sculpture. They cast it out of bronze and somehow they got it on top of a 27-foot tall pillar. Um, again, the, the, the point is, is, the emphasis here is on the incredible skill that's being displayed here. It's... it's it's not an insignificant thing, the work that they did. Um, and then they named the, the, they named, they named the pillars, in verse 21, Jacob and Boaz. Um, and on top of that, it says in verse 22, there was a lily design. And so the work of the pillars was finished. So on top of the pomegranates and the, and the intricate network, there's um, lilies, too, flowers, made out of cast bronze. Um, that's in, incredibly difficult work. Um, and it shows in... So not only, not only do they cast these pillars, now they move out into the sanctuary and they make the bronze sea and they make these other little basins, ten of them, that they have wheeled on, that they can wheel around. And those, those things are made out of cast bronze, but look how huge this thing is. Um, the sea, which is the, the big bowl of water that they would use to wash stuff in verse 23, uh, it was ten cubits, which is 15 feet from brim to brim, circular in form. Its height was five cubits. Seven and a half feet tall, uh, thirty cubits circumference. Uh, so there's a brim around it, and it's designed with gourds encircling it, um, and it's sitting on a base 
that has 12 oxen, three going in each of the directions of the compass. And it was, it says in verse 26, it was able to hold 2,000 baths. Now, a bath is, I think it's 10 gallons. So it's a 20,000-gallon tank made out of cast bronze. How do you cast bronze that big? <laughs> it says that they did it um, in the plains, in the sand in the plains of, down by the River Jordan. So in other words, they had a wide place of sand and they dug a pit. They dug a pit in the sand with all of this intricate work in there and they poured bronze on top of that. How do you do that? My goodness. <laughs> I mean, I, this is a, it's, a, it's really impressive, the skill that goes into this. Um, and the value of it. And in addition, in addition to that, they take these, they make these um, ten stands of bronze, and they put ten basins in them. They've got wheels. But notice how these, uh, and the, the purpose of those would be, you would wheel this thing up here because you can't move this around. It's got 20,000 gallons of water. Um, so you take these things that are built on wheels. They hold like three or four hundred gallons, and you wheel it up there, fill it up, and you can wheel it around. And you can, you don't have to, you don't have everybody in the temple doesn't have to come here to wash their stuff. You can, you can distribute the water around. Um, but they're just, they're look, they looked like they were made, these things were made to look like cherubim. So it's like a little cherubim going around the, tab, the temple, washing things. Um, that's how it's described. It says that in verse 29. Um, the borders of these things were, between the frames were lions, oxen, and cherubim. And on the frames were the pillars above. Beneath were lions and oxen, reeds hanging around the work. So there's intricate carving work done on that, or cast work as well there. And they have bronze wheels. And it's described, how are they described? They're wheels like the wheels of what? Verse 33. They're wheels like the wheels of a chariot. So these are, these are like angels on a chariot running around the temple washing things. Where, where do you see something like that else in the Old Testament? Something that has the face of an ox and a lion. And then they've got wheels flying around and they... And you said Ezekiel, right? The first couple chapters of Ezekiel, God, God himself rides into town on a chariot that's a cherubim. And it's, it's a chariot with wheels. It's got wheels and eyes everywhere. And it's got four faces on it. The, the man, the ox, the, the eagle, and the lion. And you've got, in other words, these things look just like what Ezekiel saw. But how did they make it just like Ezekiel saw it? Or very similar to what Ezekiel saw? How did they know to do that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's the point. This is not just them making stuff up. There, there, is, there is, in the intricate work they did, there is an accurate reflection of what goes on in heaven. Somehow. Um, so what they're making, they're not just designing stuff out of their minds, saying, I think we'll make it with a lion's face. And they, and they carve a lion's face. They're not just making this stuff up out of their own wisdom. The, the text is saying that this is wisdom that came from God. It comes from heaven to them to do this work. Just like, in, just like in the tabernacle. Now Moses built it on the pattern of heaven. These things are being built on a pattern that comes from heaven. Um, this is not just their own skill in doing it. Um, and there's so much of it. And so now after they build all these things, they start building, they start making the utensils, forks and shovels and, and so forth. And it says that in verse 47, it says that Solomon left all the utensils unweighed because they were too many. And the weight of the bronze could not be ascertained. Um, you know, in the, in the old days, there was three basic units of money. There was gold, there was silver, and there was bronze. Bronze was, you know, like uh, a, a lesser unit of money. But there's so much of it that they don't even bother to count it. That's how, that's how extensive this work is and how expensive it is. Can you imagine the cost in terms of today's dollars to build a building like this? I mean, is there any... I mean, where would you find a country that would have enough surplus income to build a building like this? I mean, we couldn't even do that today. America's the richest country in the world, but try getting that past Congress. <laughs> you know, to build that. And they'll spend their money in other ways, I guess. Um, but seriously, I mean, this, this, is, this is one of the most expensive building projects um, that you could even think of in terms of, the, in terms of the cost of the work, the cost of all that it would take to do it. And so the summary of that is in verse 51. Thus all the work uh, that King Solomon performed in the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought the things dedicated by his father David, the silver and the gold and the utensils, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. So that's what these ribs are for. 
That's what these rooms are for. That's a bank, is what that is. And it's, and it's filled with the gold and silver and all the stuff that David acquired during his reign. So the, the, the value of this building and the value of the contents that it contains is indescribably great. Not only, you can't count the gold, you can't count the bronze, but how are you going to measure all the gold that's in it? I mean, what is, what is the actual worth of this, of this building? It's beyond, beyond calculation, beyond compare. But the building is not the point. God has already told us that. He interjected right there in the middle uh, of all this work going on, and he came to Solomon and said, by the way, the building is not the point. Your hearts are the point. So this building is meant to foreshadow something else. Um, as valuable as it is, it, it's not the main thing. So now, in chapter 8, um, Solomon assembles the elders of Israel and the heads of the tribes and leaders of the fathers, and he brings them all together for the dedication ceremony. And so they, uh, they bring up the ark in verse 4, and they bring up the holy tent. The two are now joined. They've been separate for years. Um, the ark they brought out of David's household. The, the tent they brought up from Gideon. And they worshiped there before the ark, and they sacrificed, uh, so many, verse 5 now, so many sheep and oxen that they couldn't be counted or numbered. They didn't even bother to keep track of that. They were killing so many sacrifices. Um, and so they, they begin this ceremony. Um, they install the ark in its place. And they begin sacrificing these things. And they have this ceremony. And now Solomon... Uh, I'm sorry, we, we shouldn't skip to Solomon yet. We should see what God does. Um... In verse 10 of chapter 8, it happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. What, what cloud is that? That's the cloud of God's glory. Um, the thing about that is that cloud hasn't been seen for a while. That was the same cloud that, that did what? what? Where else have we seen that cloud before? I'm sorry? Muttering. <laughs> Clear. Someone speak up. Clear. Yeah, that's right. It was from the Exodus. It, it, it was. This was the cloud that guided them wandering through the wilderness, and then, and it was the cloud that was resident in the tabernacle. Uh, we haven't seen that cloud. There's no description of that cloud through, as far as I know, through Judges or uh, Samuel. I don't, I don't, we don't see it in association with anything David did, but it's back now. Um, it's back, and it's living. And it descends into the. And notice the, the, the detail of the text. It descends into the sanctuary, and it drives the people out. Mm. It takes up all the space, and they have to leave. Uh, because there's no room for them anymore, because this cloud is there. Now, that's a, that's a, that's a different kind of cloud. Because if, if there was a cloud in this room, we could all still be in here, because it's just mist. This is not that. This is something different. This is God's glory itself in the form of a cloud that filled it and, and drove them out. Um, so Solomon responds, verse 12, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a thick cloud. I have surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. Now the king turns around, or at, the, at this assembly, the king turns around and he uh, makes a prayer of dedication. Um, first he blesses the Lord for f fulfilling his word. I want to look a little bit at this prayer, because this prayer... Um, not only tells them that they need to obey the word, but it, it looks towards the future, and it shows us God's intention for this house, and it shows us the limitations of Solomon's wisdom. We've seen the extent of it. I mean, this is an extraordinary building. And, and the wisdom that Solomon had to build it was, it was itself extraordinary. But now when we get to this prayer, as we get to this prayer and we get to God's response to that prayer, we'll begin to see the limitations of Solomon's wisdom. So he, he begins to pray... Um, in verse 25, Now therefore, Lord God, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you promised, saying, You shall not like a man to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your sons will take heed to their way and walk before me as you have walked. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word, I pray, be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant, my father. Um, in verse 27, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built for you. 
Yet have regard for the prayer of your servant, and to his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this house night and day, toward the place which you have said, My name shall be there, to listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. Listen to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel, when they pray toward this place, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and hear and forgive. And then he goes on and he details how he wants God to forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor, if the people are defeated before their enemy because of sin, if there's a famine because of sin, um, if all of these things happen, uh, please hear them and forgive when they repent. Now, there's, a, there's a structure there. And all of those particular sins are mentioned in the Old Testament law, of course, that if they would turn away from God, he would send them a famine, or he would send their enemies, or he would, um, you know, do something like that. And so he's saying that when those things happen, according to the Old Testament covenant, when they sin against you and you send a pestilence or a famine or something, according to the Old Testament law, they will come to this place. They'll come to this building and they'll pray and you will for and please forgive them. That's what he's asking for. Um, and when they go out in battle against their enemy, they'll pray to you and you'll hear them. So that this house is a house of prayer. Um, but notice that as he's, as he's praying this, um, what are what are they doing in this? What are they doing while he's praying? They're still killing all those animals. Remember, there was they they couldn't even count all the sheep and the goats and the or whatever it is, what what and the bulls and all what all they were killing. They couldn't obviously that would take the whole time. So while he's praying this prayer in front of the people, saying, "This is a place of prayer, God, please hear our prayers." What's going on behind him? He's standing in front of the altar. What's going on behind him is there's this fire going up in smoke with all of these animals' carcasses being dropped on it. Um, and that, that symbolism there is meant to show us what the Old Testament sacrificial system meant to them in the Old Testament. What did they think they were doing? When they, when they brought an animal and killed it and threw it on the fire, um, what did they think they were doing? They thought they were praying. Um, they thought that, that by offering this animal, this offer is, is a kind of a, a physical way of expressing the prayer that's in my heart. So a whole burnt offering is a prayer of devotion. An atonement sacrifice is a prayer for forgiveness. You know, a peace offering is a, a prayer for fellowship and worship. I mean, this kind of thing. Um, you can see that in this text, but you can also see it in, um, uh, we don't have time to turn there, but in Luke, the first couple chapters of Luke, when Zechariah is about to hear about he's going to be the father of John the Baptist. Um, you can look at it maybe at lunchtime today or something. Uh, we don't have time to look at it today, but he's the priest, and so he represents the people, right? He goes in there offering incense, and while he's doing that, what are the people outside doing? They're praying. He's offering incense. He's offering a sacrifice, and they are praying. He represents them, and he's representing their prayers before God. He takes their prayers in the form of incense and puts it before God. So what does Zechariah think he's doing when he's burning incense? He's bringing their prayers in. In other words, the sacrificial system, in the minds of the people doing it, was a prayer. It wasn't this kind of pagan idea where... If I kill this animal, God must forgive me. You know, it's, it's not that kind of pagan transaction where if I do this, I'm feeding God or some other nonsense. That's what the pagans thought, that, they, that God was hungry. You know, and so they, they gave fruit and offerings and meat so God could eat or some other nonsense. What, what the Jews thought, what the Old Testament shows about the Old Testament sacrificial system is that it's a way of expressing your prayer. It's not some kind of transaction. And if it's a prayer, then the... The, the sacrifice itself is not is not thought to be efficacious. They didn't think that by shedding this blood, God is required somehow to forgive me. It depends on God's answer. If we're if we're asking God for it, we're saying it depends on your answer. That's how the Old Testament sacrificial system worked. It wasn't some kind of um, pagan sacrificial system at all. Um, but we're getting close to running out of time, so let's skip over the rest of this. Um, prayer, and let's look now at God's response. Since we are running short on time, let's focus on what God says. This is the first uh, few verses of chapter 9. Now it came about when Solomon finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all that Solomon desired to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, as he appeared to him at Gideon. You know, the, the first time God asked him, invited him to pray and say, what do you want? And, God, and Solomon said, wisdom. So here's the second time. In verse 3, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. Look at what he says. 
I have consecrated this house. The sacrifices didn't consecrate the house. God does right here when he says it. I have, so you can see that the sacrifices didn't do it. Um, I have consecrated this house which you have built by putting my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. And as for you, if you will walk before me, as your father David did, who walked in integrity and uprightness of heart, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and will keep my statutes and ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised your father David, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But, and here's where we see the limitations of what Solomon could do, verses 6 through 9. But if your sons indeed turn away from following me, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship him, then I will cut off from Israel, from the land which, you, which I have given them, and the house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. So Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins, and everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss, and say, why has the Lord done this? to this land and this house. And they will say, because they forsook the Lord their God and brought and who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this adversity on them. So now God's response to Solomon's prayer is, number one, I've answered it. And number two, you be careful to obey me. Now what's going to happen if they disobey? Um, the temple will be destroyed and they will be sent off from the land. Of course, that's going to happen about 400 years later. Um, th this word of God is going to be fulfilled. Um, but what does that show you? God said while they were building it that he wasn't so much concerned about the house as he was their obedience and their hearts. And what Solomon is able to do is he's able to build them a place of prayer. He's able to build them a picture, a very picture of heaven. But what he can't do is fix the sin in their heart so that God will dwell with them. He can build a place for God to dwell, but he can't, he can't make it. He can make it very beautiful, but he can't really make the people a kind of people that God wants to dwell with. <clears throat> we need someone who's wiser than Solomon to build a house that God actually wants to live in. And that's exactly what Christ has done. Turn over to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, we'll start in verse 17, and then we'll read a little bit of chapter 3 as well. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our, our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So where does this pattern get fulfilled? In the people in this room, in, in us. And notice, notice the, the same kind of language that's used to describe the, the temple that we just read. Uh, yeah, there's a foundation which is the apostles, and there are stones which are built up. And notice how the stones, it says, are being fit together. It's very much the imagery of Solomon's temple where they cut the stones and dropped them in place and it all fit. Um, the same thing is happening in the church where this temple that is being built up, it's being built up out of the hearts of people. And how is that happening? Through him, we have, in verse 18, we have our access in one spirit to the Father. The problem, the problem of the temple is a problem of access, isn't it? Because God lives there. Or he dwells there. He doesn't live there, but he dwells there. Um, but nobody can get in to see him. When he comes down, the priests have to run because they can't stand in God's presence. And the high priest only goes in uh, with the blood of a lamb and with smoke. He goes in with incense to, to shield the glory of God from him. So the problem of the temple is God's presence is there, but there's no access. Well, that's taken away when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in our hearts. Now that God is building this church into a temple... We have access to God the Father through one spirit. And notice how this is a demonstration of wisdom. Uh, skip down to verse 3, 3-8 uh, of Ephesians. 
to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, that is, the ministry of the gospel, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages had been hidden in God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confidence and access through faith in him. So we have someone who is greater than Solomon, who is building a house that is much more precious than this building, in God's eyes, because it's a place where he can actually dwell with his people. He, we can actually have, he can, he can come to us and we can have access to him. And this is a demonstration of the wisdom of God. The with, this, is, this is what is happening in this church today, with, with you guys being here, uh, all, uh, us gathered in the name of Christ, worshiping God, with God, worshiping with each other, worshiping God, building each other up in the faith. What is happening here is a demonstration of the manifold wisdom of God. That is, in God's eyes, it's far more precious than anything that was here in this building. And it is far more wise than anything Solomon was able to do. Solomon could build a building, but he couldn't change our hearts. Christ comes, and he makes our hearts into a temple. He makes our hearts that beautiful. In God's eyes, he makes our hearts that holy. In the eyes of God. Such is the wisdom of Christ uh, in fulfilling all of the promises of God for us. Um, and so, the application of it is there in verse 14. For this reason I... I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Um, this access to God we have is an invitation to pray. It's an invitation to worship and pray. We have, we have set before us the astonishing wisdom of Solomon. What do you do? More greater than that is the astonishing wisdom of Christ, who has done so much greater in building the church. And as that church is built... We have an invitation to revel in the wisdom of Christ. And we have an invitation to seek Him in prayer. What is the purpose of this building? It's to have access to God and to pray. What is the purpose of this building? It's access to God to worship and pray. So let's, let's take the invitation seriously. God wants to meet with us as a church. And He wants us to have fellowship and access with Him. So let's take, let's take that um, invitation seriously. God has, just like God promised Solomon, I'm going to hear your prayer. We have the promise in Christ. When we pray, when we seek Him, He will hear. Amen. So let's take advantage of the access we have to God. And let's worship Him. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we stand amazed before Your eternal purpose uh, that is revealed in Christ. We can't even fathom uh, the mysteries that You have revealed to us in Your Word, both in the Old Testament and the New as they teach the same thing in different ways. Uh, we stand before you in awe of your power and your glory and your wisdom, and we thank you. We thank you that, that you have seen fit to choose us to be a part of this building, to be a part of this church, to be a part of your, your very own body. We ask, oh God, that we would live a life that is worthy of such a calling, that we would be holy and that we would not grieve you and so in our sin and distress you. But let us have, let us have by your grace uh, access to you as you take away our sin, as we confess it before you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.